Designing Freedom. Ideas presents the 1973 Massey Lectures by Stafford Beer, Professor of Cybernetics, International Consultant in the Sciences of Management and Effective Organization, prolific author in these fields, and poet. In his third talk this evening, Stafford Beer applies the ideas of his first two lectures to the state drawing for us a concept of state machinery that is both efficient and a guarantee of freedom. The talk tonight is called A Liberty Machine in Prototype. Stafford Beer. The context within which most institutions operate is still the nation-state, although this situation is rapidly changing. In some ways, national sovereignty is ceded to supranational blocs, in other ways, smaller nations find their affairs profoundly constrained by the behaviour towards them of the big powers. In yet other ways, national sovereignty is just bypassed by the world view of their own operations taken by the giant multinational corporations. I have no idea what can be done to bring scientific analysis to bear on the effective organisation of this global mess, unless the United Nations itself determines it. But it has seemed to me for a long time that any one nation, thanks to the power of modern communications, could gather itself together and make that kind of effort on its own behalf. So I've spoken and written these many years. In particular, I've expressed the view that the whole business of government, that gargantuan institution, is a kind of machine meant to operate the country in the interests of individual freedom. But for just the kinds of reason examined in the first two lectures, it doesn't work very well, so that freedom is in question to a greater or lesser extent in every country of the world. So, I declared, let us redesign this liberty machine to be not an entity characterised by more or less constraint, but a dynamic, viable system that has liberty as its output. The two conceptions, as you know from the first two lectures, are utterly different. What then is the problem? There's no need to be overawed by the pomp and circumstance of the state once we have found the scientific way in to the problems of effective organisation and understood the basic laws of variety. But is it les majestés to declare that the state runs on the same model as a department store and has the same problems? Perhaps it would sound better to put it the other way round. Scientifically speaking, it just doesn't matter because the pattern for handling variety, which last time I called the model, is the same. If I say that it is precise to express this point by saying that the two organisations map onto the same model, you will have no trouble. Because fortunately the phrase map onto in mathematics has exactly the meaning you would expect. A map is the pattern of something represented with much attenuation of variety but with its significant elements preserved. Government handles its gigantic task of variety reduction by departments, just like the store. And, like the store, 
it needs a supply of information about the ongoing state of affairs. It needs a lot more information than a store, true. But that's irrelevant so long as both institutions are deploying requisite variety, and this is where the mapping holds and the model is the same. The model also tells us that the relaxation time of the system must be shorter than the average interval between shocks, otherwise instability will set in. We saw how the department store handles that problem and noted that if it failed there would be a catastrophic collapse signalised by the desertion of custom. Now if government gets into that kind of difficulty it's more difficult to recognise. By and large the customers won't desert. That's to say the nation's population will not pack up and emigrate en masse. That would be a grave decision. Besides to be a little more cynical the people may not be able to think of anywhere else to go that is any more stable than their homeland. This problem is very general. In fact, it's universal, which is why it's so important. How do we set about the diagnosis? In government, variety is handled by attenuation in four main ways. First, models are made of the country by every government department. At least we just have to dignify the patterns that government has in its head as models, although in all honesty the mapping onto reality is not very good. For one thing, the senior departments were created long ago and the national variety generators onto which they are supposed to map have changed their nature, their emphasis and their rate. So new departments have to be set up to handle the excess variety, just as happened in our store example. But in government's case, the results cannot be so good. The store does change its departments with a change of life's emphasis, and the small excess variety is absorbed by the information counter. Government, however, does not change much. Indeed, it is singularly unadaptive, in my opinion, because it has lost recognition of its stable state. So the excess variety for government turns out to be something really rather serious. An excellent current example is the total problem of the environment, a huge aggregation of unmapped variety. Naturally, the new department falls between the stools of all its old component departments. It happens in every country. What we are witnessing here is the phenomenon of change that involves no actual alteration. The second variety attenuator is the model that each department has of the component enterprises for which it is accountable. Consider the economy. Then, for example, there will have to be a model of industries by industry and models of those industries by product, by investment, by labour force, and so on. This is fine until we realise that these models treat the components as if they were entities, characterised by product, by investment, by labour force, and so on. But of course, they are nothing of the kind. They are all these component industries and their component firms dynamic, viable systems, and the items we were listing are continuously variable inputs and outputs. In fact, mostly the things that interest us are best described as outputs of these systems, since the output determines most of the input. Investment, which sounds like an input, like raw material, which sounds like an input, is attracted into the system by the size and shape of the output. At any rate, these are concepts of system we are handling now. That much is clear, and it is also clear 
that it is not very clever to attenuate variety by freezing the continuous variables into arbitrary time epochs, such as periods, quarters, years, and five-year plans, when the essence of the business is the way it continuously generates its output through time. We need to observe continuous time trends, rates of change, gradients, step functions, and so forth. All that is necessary because we, as government, have to look to the interactions of dynamic systems. The models we have were constructed primarily to inform shareholders as to the proper custody of their money. No wonder the models don't map onto each other. When data have been generated by these low-variety models, covering long and static time epochs, within departments which no longer quite fit reality, they are aggregated. So this is the third variety attenuator. There are two main reasons for this aggregation. In the first place, a minister, for example, cannot handle all the raw information being generated, even though its variety has already been twice attenuated. His brain doesn't have requisite variety to match the data until they have been aggregated. The other reason is that commercial security demands aggregation. Otherwise, it may be easy to spot what a competitor is up to, if he's big enough or localised enough, to stand out in the official statistics. Even so, both these reasons for aggregation of some kind don't justify aggregation of the kind we have, the total or the average, which, as I said, kills that subtlety of information that requisite variety demands from a dynamic system. Just imagine a doctor calling on his patient in hospital to be told by the nurse, over the last month his temperature has averaged 98.4 degrees, or yesterday your 30 patients had an aggregated average temperature of 98.4 degrees. These statements may be true, indeed it would be most surprising if they weren't. An aggregation of some kind is needed if the doctor is not to sit all the month staring at the thermometer. But to decide which aggregations are the ones to use is a problem in cybernetics, not economics, and still less in administration. The fourth variety attenuator of government information is by far the most dangerous. It is the delay imposed by the methods of collection and variety attenuation. How does delay turn out to be an attenuator of variety? Well, the situation as it really is today includes all the information that led up to it. And the most recent part of that series of data is doubtless the most important. So delayed information chops off the latest half of the variety implicit in the situation now. That means that government does not have requisite variety. It is very proper that economic statisticians should talk, as they do, about the timeliness of official information. But I want to dwell, as before, on something a little different in concept from an entity called the statistical tables for last June, characterised by whatever degree of out-of-dateness. I dwell on the fact that when the government acts, it is perforce reacting to a situation where the statistical delay often happens to be half a cycle in the economic rise and fall of prosperity, so that the government may find itself doing exactly the wrong thing most of the time. I said happens to be, but I believe that these two facts are actually linked within the system's dynamics, so that the machinery for taking decisions locks on to the wrong part of the economic cycle. 
then these are some of the problems of the four variety attenuators. Of course, my friends in government will groan. I'm not telling them anything new, and I know it. But I believe I am explaining this familiar problem in a new way, a way which enables us to do something about it. We have fast communications. Ah, but they're not mobilised. We have computers. Ah, but they are busily taking over exactly the old system and are actually taking longer than before to do the job. So look again now at the diagnosis. When the institution of government was consolidated, we had huge problems of variety attenuation which had to be solved by very crude methods. That was because all our facilities were low-variety facilities. We had no computer with remote terminals then. Now we do have these tools, but they are disregarded. These essentially high-variety regulators are used on the wrong side of the equation, not to cope with the truly high variety generated by the dynamic system, but to accept much attenuated variety from poor models with a time lag, and then to generate their own variety inside government. That's to say, a minister can always call for an elaborately reorganised set of data on which complicated mathematics have been done. But it is the computer that generates the variety, and not the real world. This is quite fundamental nonsense. We are using our powerful tools to automate and to elaborate the limited processes that we manage to achieve with the unaided brain and the quill pen, processes which our new tools were invented precisely to transcend. With this diagnosis in our minds, the prescription fraction isn't difficult to understand. First of all, we need better models of the components of the economy, and they must be dynamic models. That simply means that we need to see how the parts are interrelated on a virtually continuous basis. Then, instead of the lawyers and shareholders balance sheet model, instead of the accountants and managers profit and loss account model, instead of the input-output matrix beloved by economists, think of a model set down in terms of dynamic variety. This will be a simple flowchart in which variety is symbolised by the relative thickness of the lines of flow and the relative size of the boxes that indicate processes acting on the flow. The time lags in the system have to be shown, and this is best done by animating the flowchart so that the lines of flow move at different speeds. All this is very easy to do inside any firm, and it's an interesting question to ask who ought to do it. Our rather technocratic culture immediately answers, a team of engineers, or accountants, or operational research men. Well, I don't believe it. That just isn't necessary. And besides, no one will really be interested in the model they create. The people who know what the flows are really like are the people who work in the middle of them, the work people themselves. And if their interest can be captured in putting together the total model of how the firm really works, we shall have some genuine worker participation to replace a lot of talk about worker participation. Please note the reappearance of that basic distinction between entities and dynamic processes. By what means does the firm try to give its people a sense of participation in the business? We have seen that static entity, the Works Committee, characterised by its standard set of debating points that arise at every meeting. We have seen that static entity, the House Journal. 
we have seen in each production department that static showcase in which the assemblies to which our products contribute pathetically gather dust. All of this has a certain unreality because it freezes the dynamics of living and working in its tracks. Then contemplate a company that is run from a control centre in which the dynamic flowchart, continuously reflecting the world outside by teleprocessing data into it, constantly holds the pattern and uses the computer constantly to monitor all that variety. We are near to this concept in running a battle or a warship or an electricity supply system. But for some cultural reason, the whole notion is alien to running the economy. Yes, despite all this talk about the firm, I haven't forgotten that we are supposed to be discussing the management of the economy. The fact is that the total picture of industrial activity held by the government is made up of separate pieces, just like a jigsaw puzzle. The pieces are representations of economic sectors or industries, and if these representations are not clear, the total picture, when completed, will be a total confusion. But there is a jigsaw within the jigsaw. The pieces of each industry are its component firms. So we must start in the right place. The picture of the firm must be sufficiently clear as to contribute to a clear picture of the industry. The picture of the industry must be sufficiently clear as to contribute to a clear picture of the industrial economy. And obviously, the question arises whether an autonomous firm will agree to collaborate in such a scheme. The reply is that government has many inducements to offer in obtaining the information it needs, and the greatest of these inducements is the fact that industry cannot expect sympathetic treatment from government policy if it will not contribute useful and timely information. Then we can see what our potential model of the whole economy looks like. It consists of a dynamic system of simple models of dynamic systems fitting into each other like Chinese boxes. Each box is called a level of recursion because what we are doing is to reduplicate a cybernetic system of regulation recursively, that is over and over again, using the same components with appropriate variety adjustments. The law of requisite variety has to be satisfied at each level of recursion so that stability is induced and off we go. Information continuously passes up and down this recursive system, appearing in its right form in the control room of the level concerned. Now see what's happened to the problems of time lag and aggregation. Instead of accepting those problems and misusing computers in the attempt to make adjustments for them by re-injecting variety on the wrong side of the equation, we have magically disposed of the problems altogether. I urge this precept on you. It is better to dissolve problems than to solve them. If time lags are a nuisance, don't have any. Use teleprocessing to eliminate the lag. If aggregation is a nuisance, do away with it. Use computers to attenuate variety more cleverly. The vision I'm trying to create for you is of an economy that works like our own bodies. There are nerves extending from the governmental brain throughout the country, accepting information continuously. So this is what is called a real-time control system. Why should governments be trying to deal today with last summer's problems 
which are, in any event, settled one way or another by now. Then does this mean that government will be flooded with masses of data that it cannot handle? Certainly not. My brain and your brain at this moment are both accepting all manner of sensory input. Everything in the room is registering there, and that's good, because we may need to attend to something quite suddenly. Until that need arises, however, our brains automatically inspect all this irrelevant input and filter out most of it. This is what I mean by using computers as variety handlers on the right side of the equation. They have to accept all manner of input and attenuate its variety automatically. What they will pass on to the control room is whatever matters. Now, we tell our brains what matters to our bodies by detecting inputs that are deviating from what would normally be expected. Everything else maps onto the understood pattern in the model. Inputs fluctuate, of course, but they fluctuate within limits that can be continuously calculated by probability theory, if you have a computer. So to recognize what matters, the computer will need to make very, very complicated calculations on every item of data coming in and assess the chances that something novel is happening. In the huge majority of cases, nothing will be happening, in which case the input item can simply be discarded. It doesn't need to be stored in those gigantic data banks we keep hearing about because it has no significance at all. We already know from our basic model what the ordinary variation is, and this input item lies within it. So what? Unless you have shares in electronic storage equipment or are building a career as a bureaucrat, you'll see no reason for keeping it. And if you are particularly interested in freedom, you will see every reason for throwing it away. It now becomes clear why I was making those remarks last time about cost. As soon as you think of running the economy by computer, the culture promptly feeds you an image of acres of expensive equipment. It isn't required. What is required is an ordinary computer with teleprocessing interfaces between itself and its inputs from the country and itself in the control room, plus an extraordinarily clever program. The cost is in that software and not in acres of hardware, its maintenance and staffing. But if the regulatory model is the same at every level of recursion in the economy, because the cybernetic models map onto each other, only one set of software is required. So now we may visualize the control room and the decision takers within it acting together in symbiotic relationships as a brain for running the economy. The nerves that feed information continuously to that brain pass into its computing lobes where the variety filters work. The basic model appropriate to this level of recursion which is in here running as an animated flowchart, is the focus of all discussion. It is constantly updated by the various kinds of alerting signal that the computers produce. These signals will cause the decision takers to call for more information, and they will use electronic storage to project that onto screens. Then, if they really wish to get down to serious decision taking, they will activate their dynamic systems model with their new data and try out alternative policies by simulating them at very fast speed. You probably know that it's possible by electronic simulation to make a 10-year-ahead projection instantaneously and then to change your policy and see what difference it makes. 
This is to take an experimental approach to policy making, doing the experiments in the laboratory of the control room. So, instead of experimenting on the poor old nation and discovering ten years later that your policy was wrong, you can test and discard a dozen wrong policies by lunchtime without hurting anyone. After lunch, maybe you'll find a good policy. Now, it's true that much controversy surrounds simulation techniques, but this is mainly because of the inadequacy and the belatedness of the data fed into them. What do you expect from those low-variety models, aggregations and time lags? But by redesigning the whole institution, and it's the only way, all those problems are dissolved, and the data feeding the simulations will be immediate, significant and real. Clearly, this is no more than a brief sketch of the advocated approach, which is available in full, but of course much more lengthy, detail elsewhere. The fundamental criticisms that it has evoked are four. One says that instead of this being a liberty machine, it means the death of individual freedom. I shall talk about this later on, because it's so important, and ask you to suspend judgment until you have heard the arguments. The second criticism is related, but it is different nonetheless. It says that this whole approach to running a country presupposes a regime in which the state either owns industry or intervenes massively in its affairs. This is based on a misunderstanding. It confuses the machinery of government with government policy. I'm not talking about that policy at all, nor taking a particular policy for granted. I am talking only about the machinery with which any modern state is equipped in the necessary task of government, and I am arguing that it ought to work. Every government regulates, every government controls, to some degree or other. In short, it governs. These arguments have been concerned with the how of governing, not with the extent of intervention. The third criticism says, it's all too simple. Real life is much more complicated than this. The only honest reply to this is a belly laugh. What's proposed here is simple enough, I hope, to be understood once you know some of the laws of cybernetics. And if it isn't simple enough to be understood, then of what conceivable use is it? Moreover, it's a very great deal more close to real life than the system we use now, because it's dynamic instead of static, systemic instead of a collection of entities, and because it really can handle variety according to scientific principles, which the existing system cannot. Please appreciate that once you start to use systems thinking, you need fewer data than before, because the data are synthesized within the model of the system. And this relates to the previous criticism, because I by no means envisage that a private business would supply more information than it does now, probably less why is it that a doctor doesn't have to take your body to pieces and measure everything in it when you arrive saying, I feel rotten? It's because the doctor holds a good model of the human body. When he knows your temperature, pulse rate and blood pressure, has inspected your tongue and observed the rings around your eyes, he already knows most of the usual stories. By using good recursive models of the economy, we should achieve the same effect. Ironically enough, while this third criticism says it's all too simple, the fourth criticism says it's all too complicated. You could never do it, or it would take 20 years. 
Maybe you've noticed that I've been describing this approach today with a force and confidence which you may have thought brash in describing a vision. Indeed, until two years ago, I was much more gentle and tentative, even apologetic, in making this description. But today I'm no longer guessing, because all the basic work has actually been done. Perhaps you remember my describing how these lectures were prepared in Chile. I was not actually on holiday there, as it may have sounded, rather the reverse. Two years ago, President Allende invited me to create a system of this kind for the Chilean people. Now, Chile isn't a rich country, and we couldn't afford all the apparatus we should have liked. For instance, we had to use ordinary telex instead of teleprocessing. Even so, we made it. We had everything I have just been describing available, though not yet running the economy, in 18 months. In the few months that remained to us, we set about teaching the workers, for whom this offering of science to the people was created, how to use the most advanced tools yet devised for national economic management. They could sit with their ministers in the economic operations room in Santiago, watching the animated screens and discussing the alerting signals provided daily by that clever computer program. They had buttons in the arms of their chairs so that they could command the appearance on other screens of supporting data to the capacity of 1,200 different colour presentations focused through 16 back projectors. They could also control preliminary experiments in simulation on a huge animated model of the dynamic system. These people, arm in arm with their science, were intended to become the decision machine for the economy. You all know what happened. On the 11th of September 1973, Salvador Allende died in a bloody business, of which the consequences for mankind are incalculable today. I tell you solemnly that in Chile, the whole of humanity has taken a beating. Of the lessons from my own work that emerge, I mention four. Firstly, it is actually possible to redesign the institutions of government according to the principles and practice of cybernetics. These are not wild dreams. Secondly, there is a long way to go in dismantling bureaucracy, and I shall discuss the problems of effecting change later in these talks. Thirdly, the possibilities propose an urgent task for our next meeting to discuss the impact of such scientific advance as this on the status and freedom of the individual. So I move to the fourth and final point for today. Individual freedom has been lost, momentarily at least, in Chile. I think I know how, but it was certainly not because the people became victims of technocracy. What is clear is that everything that I have described was accomplished and ended in two years, and it was not fast enough. When I drafted these lectures and outlined the hypothesis you heard, that perhaps our institutions could not react fast enough to avoid catastrophic collapse, I remember thinking that I should have to defend myself against a charge of sounding a premature and too scaremongering alarm. Do you care to make that allegation now?
Liberty Machine in Prototype, the third of the 1973 Massey Lectures by Professor Stafford Beer. Stafford Beer is the author of five books, Cybernetics and Management, Decision and Control, Management Science, Brain of the Firm, and Platform for Change. The 1973 Massey Lectures, Designing Freedom, by Stafford Beer, are now available in paperback. If you'd like to purchase a copy, send a check or money order for $2.50 to CBC Learning Systems, Post Office Box 500, Terminal A, Toronto, Ontario, M5W1E6.